Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Ladies and gentlemen, we are absolutely thrilled to have esteemed author and publisher Richard Chismar here with us today to discuss his new book, Becoming the Boogeyman. Richard is not only a New York Times, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Amazon, and Publishers Weekly bestselling author, screenwriter, and extremely prolific short story writer. He is also the founder of Cemetery Dance Magazine and the Cemetery Dance Book Imprint, and has won two World Fantasy Awards, four International Horror Guild Awards, and the Horror Writers Association Board of Trustees Award. Welcome, sir. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yes. So the only thing to do with a biography like that is to dig right in so our listeners can can be as excited as we are. So <laughs> for anyone out there who doesn't know, back in August of 2021, Richard's book, Chasing the Boogeyman, was released to much praise and success. It was a huge bestseller. Stephen King called it, quote, genuinely chilling. And on October 10th of this year, in just a couple weeks, the highly anticipated sequel, Becoming the Boogeyman, is being released. First, big congratulations. I know a lot of people are looking forward to this. Chasing the Boogeyman is often described as a marriage between true crime and horror fiction, as it uses the format of a true crime book to tell a horror fiction story. But in another wild postmodern twist, it's also a memoir of sorts, as you've inserted yourself into the book as the narrator and set it in your hometown of Edgewood, Maryland. So, Richard, how did you come up with this idea of combining true crime and horror, blending fiction and nonfiction into a kind of meta horror story memoir? Oh, boy. Um, it. Uh, you know what? I wish I, I wish I could say it was this you know, brilliant marketing ploy on my part, or it was this, you know, lightning bolt of inspiration to, you know, try something new, but it was really just a happy accident, um, which is what happens most of the time with my writing. Um, I, you know, I, for a long time, I wanted to write a book kind of, you know, that small town book, but I always figured it would be more like it, you know, from Steve by Stephen King, or maybe, uh, uh, you know, Summer and Night by Dan Simmons. I, I always thought it would be this big, fat monster book, you know, childhood, that kind of thing. And and instead, you know, the idea that really stuck with me was uh, was this kind of, like you said, this kind of mixture of genres. Um, I never intended to put myself in the book. You know, when I sat down to write the introduction, um, I was maybe three or four pages in and I realized and, and I was just this kind of nameless narrator at that point. And I just realized that because so much of it in this case was being taken directly from my life that, you know what, this had to be me. And so the next natural jump was, was true crime. I'm a big fan of the genre. Um, I think when it's done well, it's, it's just extremely powerful, you know, knowing that this is not fiction and that this really happened to, to someone and their family and their, you know, all the survivors that were left behind and, and the, even the story of the, of, of the bad guy or bad guys, you know, who, who committed this crime. It's, it's just a completely different animal for me when I'm reading it and I'm fascinated looking at the pictures and the photos. Um, so yeah, it's a long winded answer, but 
I just immediately, once I knew that it was truly my story, uh, the book became incredibly uh, easy to write and which is unusual and also a lot of fun, which is unusual. You know, I mean, I always have fun, but you know, I'm writing about murders. Um, but uh, yeah, it just became a, a completely different thing. And, and like I said, I love true crime. So the idea was right there to kind of meld them and, 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 you know, go from that viewpoint. I want to commend you because I, I almost feel like, um, I don't want to say a, a lesser author, but maybe an author that didn't know themselves and the work that they were getting into might have even like pushed back against that. Like you said, you know, you started to feel like, oh, this had to be me. Somebody else might have just said, you know, well, you know, of course it can't be me and like been been imprisoned by like the, the con, you know, the rules that uh, you have to abide by in order to write a book and you can't mix up all these genres. Um, but just, you know, well done for like having that intuition and, and going with it. It's it turned it created a, a really a, a Frankenstein in the like best sense of the word. Well, what was interesting is it happened because it happened so organically and it, and it happened so quickly, it, you know, literally in that day, like I said, that I wrote the introduction, there was really no time for, for self-doubt or second guessing for me. It, that came later when I realized what I'd done and I sent it off to my agent. This was not the book that, that, uh, you know, she and I had discussed that I would write next, but it consumed me. Um, so when I sent it to her, yeah, I, I was really weary. And, and then when I told her that I was the character in the book, she was like, okay. Um, <laughs> and then thank God, you know, a couple of weeks later when she read it, she's like, all right, you won me over. And, 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 it, you know, it was very unusual for her. I know because, and she told me this, you know, I'm a very behind the scenes person. I don't really prefer to go to, you know, book shows and conventions and all that. If I can help it, I like to stay home. So it was interesting for her, you know, in a way she was, I could tell she was like, you did what? Um, <laughs> but yeah, so those doubts didn't come until much later. Um, I just, like I said, I had so much fun. You know, my parents have, have been gone for, for a number of years, but while I was writing the book, they were alive and well, and I was living in my old bedroom and, and uh, eating dinner with them and seeing my friends and, and, and running around the old neighborhood, um, you know, as a recent college graduate. So it was a, that kind of dynamic was, is what really appealed to me about the story is kind of being, you know, right there, a, an adult and really being on the threshold of, of adulthood as far as marriage and a job and all that stuff. But, you know, for those nine months before I was getting married, I moved home save money. And, and I'm in my old bedroom, kind of, uh, you know, staring out the window, the ghosts of my childhood, as I write about in the book. So that was an interesting dynamic that I wanted to explore. While Thank it was you. a happy coincidence, it's, um, this has been described as metafiction. So that's mm -hmm. a pretty broad term. What is that? What does metafiction mean to you? Um, you know what, before this, I, 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 you know, Brian Keene, we published a book from him called The Girl on the Glider, which was metafiction, which was, you know, really interesting, you, you know, and put a lot of his own life in there. Um, again, you know, I, I mean, so so what do I think of it is, is, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think if it's done well, it's, it's I think I think there's a lot more metafiction out there than people give credit to. I know a lot of writers who who constantly put themselves in those stories and then even later, sometimes they'll deny it. But in this case, I just embraced it, you know. My uh, my my intention with this, um, and, and you may have heard this before, but I wanted to Blair Witch the audience. I never wanted to. I never wanted to be completely honest and say this is you know a novel. My that was my publisher, um, and bless them, they're smarter than I am. So they they were probably 
They're Absolutely. lawyers. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I had several long conversations with Simon Schuster's legal department very early on um, where they squashed that idea because I was very excited. I was like, I want to Blair Witcham. I want everyone to think this is real. I said, I've got plans. I've got fake newspaper articles I want to plant online. Um, my oldest son is a filmmaker and uh, I, I, I talked to him about the idea of doing a, a documentary about the murders which, you know, playing it completely straight and putting that online. And so when people went to Google, they would find things to reinforce that and the photographs. I thought that'll reinforce that this is the real deal. But everyone, I'm the only one who thought that was a great idea, you know, from the publishing side of things. So that that got squashed. And it says a novel right on the front cover. And um, there's a disclaimer in the beginning that says, hey, you know, while some of this may be true, the murders are not, and the rest of it's just figment in the author's imagination. And I, I was so steadfast that I refused to write that. I had my editor wrote it and put it in there oh, wow. with with my support, of course. But I was just like, no, I, I, that'll break my heart to do that. So you have to do that. Yeah, like a cannibal holocaust. Yeah, they ended up in court. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, you know, they they're they're protecting me, and and they probably you know saved uh, a lot of you know, me from getting a lot of pissed off mail. You know, I already got some. They're like, I can't believe you pulled the wool over my eyes. And I'm like, that's that's what you spent 25 bucks for, right? Is to kind of go <laughs> away to another place and, and and enjoy this story or or you know, to endure this story if you have to. But but yeah. And the great thing was is people still Googled. People still Googled away. People still insisted that it was true. There's locals who still insist that it happened. And even though I've owned up to it and, and I love that part, you know, that side of it. Well, now you're on a list with authors that include Cervantes and Thomas Pynchon. So that must be nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I, just in terms of the the metafiction piece, I was just going to add to it in in the Boogeyman book. It's almost like the fourth wall isn't being broken, but more so being pointed out, laughed at, mocked. So it, I think that it, I, I mean, I, becoming the Boogeyman, I thought was even better than the first. I again hesitate to say that because the first one was amazing, but um, I think readers are going to be thrilled with this new book. I hope so. I hope so. You know, that the sequels are scary. And again, I kind of, I kind of go in, I, you know, I'm like a 12 year old kid. I just kind of just go in, you know, happy go lucky and think, ah, oh, you know, and it, even though my publisher was very enthusiastic, um, you know, we signed a two book deal and the sequel was one of those um, two um, at the same time, you know, they're smart enough to be weary, you know, sequels not living up to the original sales wise and also content wise and all that. So, I had I really did this time have to block that out of my head and just said, I'm just going to pick up where the first one left off and I'm going to write the best story I can. I'm going to play it straight again. I'm going to have photos, going to have fun with it. Um, I'm going to try to make sense out of some of the darkness in it and um, and tell my story. And and so that's what I did. And uh, I'm just yeah. So just like the first one, you know, those those kind of those kind of thoughts for me don't come in until we're almost to publication, which we are now. So of course now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, oh, I hope people like it, but it looks like they are. You're getting some amazing reviews. Yeah. Thank you. You know, so far so good. Um, it's much you know. more action packed. Yeah, that was, that was important. You know, the first one, like I said, was, you know, the first one I really did, even in the language and everything, I tried to, you know, in that long historical section in the beginning, I, I tried to really model it after some of the true crime books that I love. Um, 
And and so in that regard, yeah, it, it was much more of a narration in, in parts. And I and that's why I tried extra hard to make those, you know, the murder scenes and, and some of the, uh, you know, goings on in the town when, when they were, you know, paranoia was setting in and all that. I tried to make that as visual as I could and and as action oriented. But um, but yeah, like, you know, my editor, who is brilliant. He, he and he really let me do my thing. But, you know, that was one of his notes. He said, you sure you want to have that long historical chunk in the beginning and all? And I said, yeah, I said, I get it. I, I said, you're going to be right. I'm going to get dinged a few times for a slow opening, which I did. But I said, that's that's the, the truth I really enjoy the most are those ones that really set the tone for you first. You get to know the town, you get to know the background people and characters and actors there. Um, and I said, and then that way, once you get introduced to, to the, the, the dark side of it, the murders or the crimes, whatever they may be, you know, you feel like, you know, these people and, and, and it even, it has a more meaningful impact. So that's kind of where I came from, from there, but yeah, the second one, I didn't need to do that quite as much. Um, and so we kind of just dove in and, and from chapter one, bad stuff was happening. <laughs> I see, you know, what William Burroughs to- said, uh, Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, you know what? That's the that's the the fun of it for me. You know, I, I went to college for I got a journalism degree and I really enjoyed that. And I thought I'd be doing that. Um, but I really quickly discovered that that, you know, there's such a formula involved with with good journalism um, as far as the rules you have to follow, as far as leads and, you know, this and that and the body and all that. And. I just, you know, one of the things that I immediately fell in love with with fiction is that you could break all the rules, you know, not only in the language, but in the storytelling techniques and all that. And, and I, you know, I've always been dragged kicking and screaming to follow rules. So nice. fiction was for me, fiction was fun. I do have to ask, since you mentioned that you you structured the, the uh, narrative at the beginning of the first book after some of your favorite true crime books, what what are your favorite true crime books? Oh boy. You know what? I knew you were going to ask me that question. Uh, <laughs> I should have stacked them up right here because there's too many to, to really get into. I mean, I really like, uh, you know, I, I like the ones where the, where the writers really inject themselves into the stories because, the, because such passion exists in those stories. And then sometimes it's literally they're part of the stories. I mean, the first one, which, you know, all true crime fans have read is the, uh, you know, was the stranger beside me. I just, you know, when I read that, that, that I still answer, I still give that title as, you know, an answer to the scariest book I've ever read. Um, same, <laughs> same, yeah. same. Yeah, it's so I funny mean, to me too when people say that they're huge true crime fans and they've like never even heard of that book. I'm like, mm. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's what is it? six, six hundred, seven hundred page book or something, and I've read it, you know, numerous times, um, and I feel like I find something new every time. And, and even though that's a cliche, it's it, it's honest, but. Yeah, that was that was an early read for me and remains one of my favorite. And there's so much extra material in there that I know some people, especially modern day audiences, would be like, oh, you know, they didn't need to have this whole section. And I'm like, no, man, it was just like Stephen King's It, where it's like, nope, I loved every page, you know, all the backstory and stuff for me worked. Um, And in that case, just the fact that it was true. And, you know, she worked with this guy and they became, you know, more than acquaintances, they became friends. And then just and the scene, you know, the scene where he he used the the the, you know, tossed off pieces of firewood, you know, to, to bash the sorority girls. I, I had nightmares about that and I, I couldn't get that out of my head for weeks. Um, 
but yeah, that was one of those books that that is one of my favorites. And and you know, James Renner wrote <clears throat> the introduction to Chasing the Boogeyman, and and several of his books I, I put in the same category where he just became so passionately involved, and and he was honest about it. Um, and and I and I respect that. I appreciate that. Um, I was going to mention that, that. That's that's wild that you know you have him introduce the book as it is a true crime book. You know, he doesn't right. say you know that was really cool. I, yeah, I, that was one of those where I, I emailed him and I said, uh, and, I, and I knew him just a little bit, um, had never met, had never spoken on the phone, but I actually emailed him and I said, I have an idea that may be really dumb. I know it's crazy. And I said, you have a couple minutes to get on the phone? And he did. And when I told him, he's like, oh, I love that idea. <clears throat> and at that time, I was still hoping to, uh, you know, Blair Witch or War of the Worlds, the audience, you know, and, and uh -huh. make him it so i just thought he did a wonderful job and and the reason i picked him is because again i <clears throat> i was kind of stepping into his shoes as someone who was obsessed with this story and what i loved about james is uh is and i'm trying to think of the title of the specific book about the young girl who was murdered um that he became so obsessed with but uh, it it you know he didn't always shine a favorable spotlight on himself he was really honest and i tried to do that and you know people said well you know, how much it was true. And I said, well, all the background stuff in chasing the boogeyman and becoming the boogeyman are true. All those stories, even the gross ones, my kid, you know, my friends and I, we did that when we were kids. Um, you know, the stuff with my family is as true as it can be, you know, through recollection and, and how we are and how we were together. Um, and, and then I said, you know, you get to the murders, they didn't happen, fortunately, but hopefully I, you know, pulled it off that they were realistic. And then as far as my reaction to the murders, as far as my own behavior, I tried to be as honest as I could as to how I thought I would have acted. And, and even though it wasn't always necessarily favorable because there I am, you know, there's people being killed in my, in my hometown and I'm certainly not happy about that, but I can't deny the fact that there's an excitement to it, you know, and I compared myself to one of those, uh, uh, you know, weather channel newscasters when there's a hurricane rolling in and, mm -hmm. you know, people are going to lose their homes and, and there will inevitably lo be loss of life. But you could tell those reporters are doing their best to, to, to squeeze back the, the smiles on their faces because they're so excited. They're so juiced up with what's happening. Um, and I, and I, I, I tried to, uh, to be as honest as I could. And, and then to the point where I kind of, you know, learn my lesson. And that's where uh, Carly kind of comes in. She's kind of my conscience in, in chasing the boogeyman and also becoming the boogeyman. She's, she's that, uh, she's the one who, who along with my wife is, is a lot smarter than I am. And, you know, teaches me some lessons. So was the, is the Myers house a real place? Uh, Myers is house is real. Okay. Well, that's Myers interesting. Still there. It's because um, you mentioned the film Halloween several times and mm -hmm. Michael Myers and you, the, your killer is, is a little bit reminiscent of Michael Myers with the, oh, yeah. the blank mask and how he tilts his head back and forth. That's, that's a wild coincidence that you actually have a Myers house just yep. like Halloween. Yeah, I mean, all the way I describe that, the long gravel driveway, that is a shortcut from the uh, little shopping center that we used to walk to all the time to get baseball cards and, and gum. And there's a pizza shop there and a pool hall, the whole thing. Um, I mean, you talk about a great place to grow up. Um, you know, you got the haunted house right there next to everything. Um, and, and the back end of it abutted right with a street up the road from my house. You know, it, it was a genuine shortcut. And I did, I used to, at, at night, I used to tell my friends scary stories walking up there and I look over my shoulder and scream all of a sudden and take off running and they'd scream and chase me and, and the whole thing. But yeah, Myers house is still there. It's now, 
it's obscured from the road by a bunch of trees, which makes me sad. Um, but uh, it's still there, still scary looking. Um, yeah. And the Phantom Fondler is real as well. Phantom Fondler was real. That's kind of where the story came from. You know, that that really was happening as far as this guy was breaking in and, and touching, you know, women as they slept and then they would wake up and he would take off and he was never caught until years later for a different offense. And they, they matched up the fingerprints and they're like, this was the guy who did it. And That's I just remember that time. It, it really was like I talk about in the book. It was <clears throat> the town really did kind of feel held hostage by someone because mm-hmm. this was happening and over and over again. And I was astonished later when I did the research to go back and find out how many times it did happen, because it, I, in my brain, if someone had asked me, I would have said probably, you know, eight or 10 times, but it was over like three dozen times. Um, wow. Wow. And it was a different time. You know, people didn't lock their doors and windows, even sometimes at night. And, and, but, but eventually they started to, and he was still getting in. And it was just very, when I read, uh, I'll be gone in the dark. I mm-hmm. think that's the title of it. Yes. The Michelle McNamara book, you know, a lot of what this guy did reminded me of what they describe that killer doing, but our guy wasn't killing people, fortunately. But, you know, I was I, about to ask you about uh, uh, D'Angelo because if you reminded me of that story in that he was active in the 80s and he didn't get caught until the late right. 2010s through DNA. So it reminded me a lot of that and also running through storm ditches. Oh, yeah. It's like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, any, those suburban neighborhoods, that's the thing. And, and, and and I and I had this reinforced for me after the book came out um, because I heard from so many readers um, that they grew up in a small town just like mine, um, in completely the other side of the country. Or I grew up in the suburbs, and this the same thing. You know, we had a haunted house, we had this, we had our shortcuts. And, and you know, you're right. The kids do know more about the town than the grownups because they hear things, they see things, they go places they're not supposed to. They see in windows they're not supposed to, you know, um, all of that. So I, I really tried to carry that over. And um, yeah, that whole story, that's another book that's a favorite of mine. And, and the documentary that was on HBO really that, you know, yeah, that killer freaked me out again. Nightmares. Oh, man, he's one yeah, of the worst. Sure. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and it's such so, so tragic that she died before he was caught. It's us. Oh, yeah, crazy. I know it's crazy. So you know, you were just talking about adults versus or grownups versus kids, and you know, you talk about this, um, this Myers house, and Matthew and I were talking before you came on the call about how we we both got sort of like Marston House, like Salem's Lot vibes from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just curious, like now, you know, you're very much the grown up and not the kid that was running from those haunted houses with his friends. Do you, and also too, with this phantom fondler, not, not necessarily not a ghost as proven. Eventually he was caught, but do you now today, do you believe in haunted places or cursed places? Um, Like somebody like this phantom fondler can, can exist and do the things that they do because of places cursed or more evil or has has like bad vibes how what are your thoughts on that today oh yeah i'm a believer um um you know i am a i'm a big scary cat and and (laughs) so yeah i'm a believer you know i'm the uh anytime i'm writing about a character that is like you know yeah he's he's a halfway intelligent guy yet he's all in you know he believes in bigfoot and ufos and and evil and cold spots and all that that's me um, which is probably why I still love doing what I'm doing after 35 years. Um, 
And, you know, I, I uh, you know, not to name drop because he's a, he's a friend of mine, but like Steve King, he makes fun of me because I'm still a big chicken. And I, I get scared. <laughs> like, oh, I had to, you know, when paranormal activity came on, my son and I had to wait. We had to stop it and wait till the next day and watch the rest of it in daylight. <laughs> we're like, no, you know, we're done. Um, and I'm still that way. I, I've, I've still done that with films. And, and my wife will laugh that, you know. If uh, we, we moved into a 200 something year old house and there's a big um, spring house in the backyard, right. stone, 250 years old, you know, creepy as hell. I, somehow, like, you know, the first month here, I was teasing my kids. There's a witch that lives in there. And I wrote about this in Chasing the Boogeyman, I think, or maybe you know, Becoming the Boogeyman. I'm like, yeah, you know, within a month, I'm convinced. I'm like, I'm not going by that damn thing at night. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a believer. I believe in all that stuff. Um and uh, until someone proves otherwise, I will continue to. And it's and the funny thing is, is it's not it's not like this convenient belief system because I'm, you know, my, I make a career with, you know, creepy things that that go bump in the night. It's just like, no, I'm that guy. Um, you know, if anyone who's read the Gwendy series that I wrote with Steve King, mm-hmm. uh, the second book is called uh, Gwendy's Magic Feather. Um, I, I talk about in that book about how, uh, you know, the feather was bought, um, you know, mm-hmm. from neighborhood kids where it all happened. You know, I, my family went on vacation to Buffalo. I saved up all this money during the, uh, the winter to, to take on this vacation. So I'd have all this spending money to do fun things in Buffalo. I, you know, I was probably eight. Um, and within minutes of getting there, I, I spent almost all of it on a magic feather that the neighborhood kids there, the older neighborhood kids sold me and my sisters made fun of me for years. And then when that book came out, I was able to say, see, maybe it really was magic because look who's got this book now with Steve King. But yeah, so I bought, you know, I believed in magic feathers when I was a kid and the whole Amazing. thing. So, so yeah. awesome. Amazing. That's me. That's me. You know, X-Files. Hell yes. I would be, um, you know, you can call me a uh, spooky molder right now. <laughs> Well, the term boogeyman is very iconic. Um, what does that what does that term mean to you? Um, you know what? It it means it means the the kid who's in bed with the blankets up to his eyes and he's here <laughs> and he's convinced and he's too scared to call out for his parents. He's too scared to open his eyes after a while. And you know, it's it's a campfire tale. And right. and the, the funny thing about boogeyman is it beforehand it it, it had a lot of buzz. And like I said, I never really thought, yeah, you know, I just thought it's another book. It's another story. And then shortly before publication day, I remember having a, a moment of kind of panic where I thought, uh oh, it really does have all this buzz. The publisher's really promoting it. You know, I'm out there really pushing it because I feel responsible to my publisher. Um, and it really is just this little campfire st- story, nice. you know it doesn't reinvent the wheel. It's about some schmuck from Edgewood, Maryland, me. I'm like, who's going to care about this story? Uh Oh. Um, and the cool thing was, is as soon as the book came out, all those kind of fears went away. Cause I started hearing from readers and, and they reminded me of something really important as far as from a, coming as a creator. Um, it, you're always, you know, you're looking to make that connection with readers and, it, it made me realize how foolish I was to be worried that nobody was going to be interested in my story because once, once it was published, it was no longer my story. It was everyone's. And the, the best thing is, is I heard from so many readers who said, I grew up in <clears throat> Illinois. I grew up in California. I grew up in Canada, people overseas too. And they said, but I felt like I grew up in Edgewood. And to take it a step further, they said, 
you wrote about things that I did in my childhood, but I've forgotten completely about. Mm-hmm. And that was such a neat thing to hear. And, and again, to be reminded that, hey, dude, this isn't your story. Don't be so egotistical. This is this is for everyone. And I can't tell you the the, the number of people who wrote me and said, um, I had completely forgotten what it was like to pop tar bubbles in the road in the summer when it was hot and they would squirt that hot water everywhere. And I had people who said, I forgot that I used to throw crab apples at cars, you know, um, and, and jumping ramps on bikes and this and that. And I, you know, the, 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 the bike, um, the ramp jumping scene on the bike where I saw my first, uh, you know, brawl on a, on a girl, you know, I had people that are like, they're like, that was my favorite part of the book because something similar happened to me, not on a bike ramp, but you know, I saw this girl, we were doing this and I, I, I'll never forget the first time I saw a bra strap and I'm just like, thank you for not making me feel like a pervert, but, <laughs> uh, but it, all these kind of stories that really were universal for other people. And it, and it made me really happy to, to know that. And, and to, especially the people who said I reminded them of, of that period in their lives. Um, I'm a Gen Xer who grew up in Timonium, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. That's got to be such a great feeling to just get. I mean, the, the you know, Publishers Weekly reviews and, and even the sales and all of that stuff is fantastic. But I'm sure hearing from readers things like how well and how much they related to everything you wrote has to be a really great feeling. Yeah. That, um, that, and including some of the family stuff. So I, I heard from a lot of people who said, you know what, it reminded me of some of my own family interactions and, and even the people who just said, man, you know, what really came through is, is how much you loved your parents. And, and, oh. and I was very fortunate that I had a great relationship, you know, and there was, of course there was, you know, I still remember reading on, you know, you see an Amazon review. I don't give a shit about Chismar's mom and dad. <laughs> and I'm like, of course not, but that's all right. right. There's always, there's always gotta be the asshole. Well, you can't oh, please fun. everybody. You know, that's impossible. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I, I enjoyed that part, too, because it just uh, from it reminded me, you know, I, I sit on the editorial side of the desk, too. So it was a great reminder of that. And I would actually read aloud to my kids from uh, some of the Facebook ads, the comments. Best book I've read all year. This is my favorite book I've read, you know, over the last five years. You know, it was so nostalgic and it had so much heart. And then there's, you know, the two down. You know, this is the worst book. I couldn't even finish it. It was so boring because it was so much about nostalgia and i'm just like that's it just it's a great reminder that everyone has you know different tastes for different people and it's all okay yeah yeah um i did want to kind of circle back just a teeny bit when we were talking about boogeyman and and and, you know creepy figures that hold so much uh weight over over readers and and people in general um you mentioned silence of the lambs several times and becoming the boogeyman and obviously you know we get one of our our greatest boogeymen in i guess in both hannibal and um buffalo bill but yeah so there's kind of kind of get two great figures out of that book but um you are a big Thomas Harris fan, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And was his work an influence directly on the Boogeyman books? And how so? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it'd probably be impossible for them not to be, you know. And, 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 and you know, um, before you guys mentioned Michael Myers, you know, obviously, you know, The Mask. And I wrote that little section about how, you know, uh, Romero with, you know, the, uh, I mean, not Romero, Carpenter with, you know, he just called it. What did, what did I say? The Shape. The shape, you know, which I love. I mean, to me, that's that's the boogeyman. You know, he 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 is the shape. Um, 
and, and I remember being a little gleeful writing that section um, because it was kind of fun to kind of put it in that perspective. But, but yeah, Thomas Harris, you know, I, I really try to make fun of myself a little bit with that. And again, I use Carly as, as the vehicle to do that, where she's just like, you know, that's the thing, Rich, you, you, you get off on this and you're still thinking, you know, you're thinking that every killer out there is this brilliant Hannibal Lecter and they're not, you know, in, in that case they were, and in some cases they are, but in a lot of cases, they're just some slob who's, you know, going to school every Sunday and, and, you know, but. Yeah. I'm he, researching uh, Albert fish right now, who was the ooh. original boogeyman. They called mm-hmm. him the, like one of the kids who had seen him abduct another child. They're like, who did it? And he's like, the boogeyman did it. Right. So he was called the boogeyman forever. And they also called him the gray man, which oh. also reminds me of the shape. You know what yes. I mean? Cause he's just like this yeah. gray figure who would appear and, and suddenly children would go missing. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is I don't like, I can't picture Thomas Harris writing about a boogeyman and, and no matter how I look at Hannibal Lecter, he's not the boogeyman cause he's so damn refined. Charismatic. And, right. Yeah. And just, you know, evil in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the boogeyman was very much just that childhood thing that you don't let go because there really are bad people out there who, who, you know, in, in a lot of cases that, that, you know, they're all wearing masks to one degree or another. And I've, and I've written a lot of, you know, a lot of what I've written is about that. It's just the everyday people, you know, who are hiding behind that mask, the mask of sanity. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and that's another thing about kids. I think I talk about that in these books or other books where it's just like, you know, they, they tend to be able to see through them a little easier. Um, than the grownups, you know, um, grownups are a little too busy and already a little bit too, uh, you know, swallowed up by life to see what's really there in some cases. So, yeah. Yeah. But Thomas Harris, I love Thomas Harris. I think he's like a mad scientist. Uh, other, um, real life, uh, boogeyman, you mentioned, uh, Ted Bundy there. Um, and I, and you also have the VW bug. So I felt like that was a little nod to, uh, Ted Bundy. Was the the Riverman book an inspiration to you at all? Because that is also quite similar in that he was talking to, uh, you know, people about his crimes from prison as they helped solve, you know, the the Green River Killer case. A little bit. I mean, that's the thing. There's everything. And that's why I say it's kind of a campfire story, because it's kind of like, you know, to me, a campfire story is you sit down, you, you know, you got everybody there and you don't come in with, you know pieces of paper with your story written you're just making it up on the fly so you're kind of throwing everything but the kitchen sink in there and in some ways that's how the story is and that was you know i I hate to say it you know because it's a morbid thought but when it comes to these you know serial murderers there really is so much out there available now Mm -hmm. to kind of stir the pot with um you know um so yeah whether it's the green river guy or this or that it's it's like man there's, you know, you have so many bits and pieces that you want to take. And that's the interesting thing is every once in a while, I, I, I kind of uh, tried to find, and I, I didn't have to try too hard because really all you have to do is think the most disgusting outlandish things. And, you know, in a lot of cases that they, oh, can't do that. I can't put that in there. Cause it's already been done. It's already been taken. Somebody in real life did this, but even those little details, like the guy who ate the hair and things like that, it's like, you know, I found myself trying to, you know, distinguish from some of the real life things that I read. 
But is, is that real? Did that happen to some? Did somebody do that? Not that I know of, but I'm sure somebody probably did. To me, that, that was, was an intense ones. part for me when I read that. I was like, "Oh man." Me too. Me too. Because I was just like, "Oh, I can see it. I can feel it, and I don't want to anymore." So it's on paper. I can move on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that 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 uh, you know, and and when I was writing about the, you know, um, you know the the oh, I can't remember his name. I got to grab the book, but um the uh the guy from down south and in, in becoming the boogeyman that's fine no spoilers but uh, he, he was the guy who ate the hair and, right. and he did other things uh you know hiding in those closets and things that was uh, it henry matheny yes 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 hmm. yeah i'm writing a new book right i'm actually finishing a new book right now so i'm like uh i'm i'm like my brain plus i had covid recently for the first time oh no really i've not only got you know novel brain but i've got covid haze still so it's like the, the last third of this book who the hell knows what's happening um <laughs> oh god that's how i feel i'm like yeah well, well i'll find out in a, in a couple of weeks when i sit down and read it from start to finish and start revising it but i have to it's turn a it wild in. ride it's a it's a, it gets really wild there at the end yeah it's exactly. really fun great um, <laughs> readers are gonna love it thanks so you are finishing up a, a new book. I, I assume it doesn't sound at all like that's it's it's not connected to this series, but no. will there be a, a part three or down the line? Would you ever oh, return to this? Yeah. With the ending of this one, there has to be, I feel like, you know, and, I, and that's one of the cool things is none of the reviews. Well, that's not true. I saw one yesterday, but it still was very uh, uh, it was still very fairly written and, and didn't kind of, you know, over overanalyze things and, and point things out at towards the end. But, um, you know, so I don't think it's a spoiler really, but yeah, I would love to do a third and final book. Um, and I never intended to do a second, you know, a lot of people have said that and <clears throat> I'm like, no, you know, I, I, I was mowing the lawn one day, just like me in the book, riding around the pond and all these other places in my yard. And don't fall uh, in. I know, no kidding. That's, <laughs> that's really happened. My kids love to tell those stories, but, um, I just, I had the idea after it just kind of came in my head full bloom. And I knew that, I knew that if I wrote that first chapter well, and it ended on the reveal that it does in the book of who the victim is um, in relation to the first book, I thought if, as long as I do my job and I write that well, I can't imagine anyone reading that first chapter and not wanting to know what happens next because of who it is. So that's, that's kind of how I sold my publisher on it. I said, look, I had no intentions of doing this. I, I, you know, by the time I'm done this, I never want to write about myself again, but I, now I have a story to tell. So I really want to do it. And they were cool. They let, you know, like I said, I signed a two book deal with them and one was, was the uh, becoming the boogeyman. And the other one was a straight horror book, which I'm finishing now. Um, so yeah, as you know, even if uh, even if I had to publish it myself, I, I'm going to do that third book because it's it's there. I have no idea what happens yet, but again, I knew what happened at the end of this book, and I can't just leave it there. So there's more story to tell, and and really after that, I never want to write about myself again. And my wife, <laughs> like my wife, who like hates all my friends, love being in it. My kids love it. You know, everyone's like, you know, you got to give me a bigger part in the next one. Um, and my wife, who's very much, you know, stay in the shadows behind the scenes. She's like, oh, she hasn't even read this one yet. And she said she uh, is going to refuse to read it until it's been out for like six months, because that way, when everyone talks to her about it, she can say, I haven't read it because she, she, you know, I told her, I said, well, you're in every chapter kind of um, because it's about my life now. And, and, 
yeah, she's not happy. So, oh, <laughs> well, no. no spoilers, but in the end, she's a crucial. Yeah, well, I think I mentioned that to her without the spoiler. I was just like, well, you, you do, you know, you do kind of, you are kind of a heroine here. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Um, Brett Easton Ellis wrote about himself twice, made himself a character. And the first one, it's a pretty much completely fictional character as he sees uh, the world sees him. He he writes about himself as he's perceived. And then um, did you happen to read his second one, which is actually also a memoir with the, him as the first person narrator and a serial killer in it killer. as well. No. It's called no, The I Shards. Didn't. It just came out like uh, le- less than a year ago. Yeah. You know what? I need to. Um, what's funny is I hadn't even heard of it. And then I saw an online. Discussion. Well, you beat him to the punch. That's for sure. Well, but I but I think he actually wrote it before I did, um, because I was going to say I hadn't even heard of it. And then I saw this online discussion that then turned into an online argument, which, you know, so many of them do. Right. That's the thing. Somebody's like, oh, Chismar beat him, you know, to, did it first and did it better. And then someone else is like, I don't know if he did it better or not, because I didn't read it. But. You know, no, you know, Ellis wrote this back in so-and-so and it was excerpted here. So there's proof that he wrote it first. And I'm like, uh, you know, now I'm glad I didn't read it. But but yeah, you know, I'll read it eventually. And the interesting thing is, is my publisher did tell me they're like, all right, after this comes out and does well, there's going to be more of these. And there has been there's been quite a few, um, you know, written in, in a similar format. Um you know, I, I don't know how many using where the author was dumb enough to use himself as a character, but but definitely from the kind of this is true. And we're going to use kind of this, uh, you know, different storytelling technique to, to tell this story. So I take that as a compliment. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Absolutely. It's such a cool continuum because I think most not maybe not most a lot of authors will admit that, you know, even a character that doesn't have a ton to do with themselves still might have a little piece of them here or there or something. You know, I mean, it's all coming from your own brain. There's going to be little teeny tidbits that are pieces of you in, in every character and a lot of the characters, you know, all the way up to like a, a memoir. It's like this, this continuum where yours falls on, you know, a little higher up toward the memoir. And yeah, absolutely. I, I am not surprised in the slightest that people saw this new thing that you did and they're like, Oh, you know, I want to move the needle on my own continuum up and kind of embrace myself as more of a character and then see where it goes. It's even just a cool, like writing exercise to insert yourself as a, as a character and, you know, then maybe strip some of that back or, you know, can the whole thing, but just have additional insight. Yeah. It's very, very cool. No, I mean, that's really smart. What you just said, a lot of people will ask me for writing advice. And sometimes, you know, when I'm invited to talks, it's, it's strictly about writing. And, and I'm very, I'm a very non-technical writer. Um, you know, as I'm always quick to point out, I'm like, look, you know, I am not a stylist. I am not, you know, I do not write this lavish prose. I just couldn't do it. If I did it, you would see it's fake and it sucks and you'd laugh at me and that's fine. But, and I wouldn't have any fun doing it. So I just really, I write my style. Um, try to be as honest as I can. And, but, but whenever I'm doing these talks and I get asked about like writer's block or people say, well, I've always wanted to write and I take notes and little, you know, tidbits of observations and things, but I just really don't know how to write a story. Um, I always tell those people, but the, both the ones who are blocked and also the ones who are looking kind of for a starting point, I always say, you know what, I think what's invaluable and I didn't do this, but I, I just, I, I, I believe this 
with all of my heart is writing, a, start by writing a journal, write about yourself, um, write about whether it's something exciting happened this day or whether it's just pretty mundane, but you had this weird observation, you know, you drove by and you saw this person on the side of the road and you had these thoughts, write them down, you know, write down what you felt, you know, in this class, when you got just test back or when you overheard this conversation or, you know, about the clothes you just bought or whatever it is, write it down. And I said, what I think what you'll start to see a pattern happening is, um, you know, that you'll start seeing that you're writing about things that are important to you, you know, whether it's a moment in time or whether it's a place or a person. And I said, and to me, that's what my short stories in particular are about. I just, you know, that's why not all of them are really plot heavy at all. They're just about a moment in time or something and or something I'm trying to make sense of. And I just said, I think if you do that, you know, if you journal and you do that, I said, I think you're going to find that a lot of times you can pull out some of those sections and they can serve as the starting point for a story, the conclusion of a story. And then really you just have to fill in the blanks. Um, and I, I said, and if you, you know, if it works right, you'll find that you're even enjoying it more because you're making it up, you know. Um, you're putting yourself in that character's shoes and kind of making up what you think would have happened, or you're just going completely off in left field and just BSing and having a good time. But yeah, I've had people come back and say it worked. So, you know, I, like I said, I can't, I can't really help you with the, uh, beyond the, Hey, cut a lot of your adverbs and, and work on your, you know, um, your, uh, you know, your, the propulsion of your story, your narrative drive, making sure you, you know, the reader's turning pages. But beyond that, this is, you know, that's, that's my best advice. That's great. It's great advice. Um, and I know you said that you're just finishing up a novel, but I don't, can you say any more about that? Or maybe if not that, or is there something new once um, you finish this that you're going to be working on? Yeah, the one I'm writing now is called Memorials. And it's an idea I've had forever. Um, you know, the roadside memorials that you see yeah. pop, that pop up, you know, the spontaneous on the side of the road when someone dies and, and they come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are just across with some flowers. Some of them are like elaborate. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes there's photos and they're like, you know, um, uh, what is it? Not shrink wrapped, but they're laminated. So the rain and weather doesn't get to them. And, yeah. and, and there's posters and, you know, religious and the whole thing. Um, I've always, I've always thought, um, you know, what if, uh, well, you know what, here's the plot. It's three college students back in the eighties. I'm, I'm back in the eighties again. Um, but I, but I had to take, take away a lot of technology to kind of make this work. And mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't want them to just jump on Google and, and mm. you know, find the answers. Um, but essentially it's three college students who are on this road trip and they're doing this school project. They're doing a documentary on these roadhouse, these roadside memorials. Um, and they start to notice something. And it's, it's a little bit of a tie in to Boogeyman where they start to notice something that repeats at some of these memorials. And there's a very dark story behind them. Um, so they find themselves in the middle of something that they shouldn't. And uh, yeah, so I'm having a blast with it. It's, it's a little bit race with the devil, you know, and, and uh, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Fun. It's fun. And, and, and I think, you know not that I care if they do or not, but it's like, it's a movie I'd want to see, which, right. you know, I don't always think, but this is one of those ones where I'm like, yeah, I'd like to see this. Um, so who knows, but, uh, but yeah, I'm having a lot of fun and I'm going to finish that. And then my son and I just signed a deal with Simon and Schuster to write. We had written a, a novella called widow's point. Right. 
um, about a haunted lighthouse. And mm-hmm. um, that little story is, you know, it's like the little engine that, that could, it, it, it blasted out, you know, over 5,000 copies in hardcover and they're out of print and the ebook has sold over 10,000 copies and, and it's just done really well. Um, and we've always wanted to write a continuation of the story. So, uh, so yeah, Simon and Schuster was cool. And they, they, we, we put together a, a proposal to, uh, to kind of use that as the first quarter or first third of a, of a full length story um, about the, the history of Widow's Point. And, and they, uh, they jumped on it. So starting in December, my son and I will be writing that. And that's going to be fun because it's, you know, full out supernatural, no rules. We can do whatever the hell we want. Is it fun to write with your son? It is. It is. I enjoy it. And, and uh, he says he does anyway. And, and, and Widow's Point was the only real overtly supernatural thing that I had written. So it was a lot of fun. I, and again, it shows you the kind of writer I am. There's not a lot of thought ahead of time. I, just, I came out of there. We're like thinking, why haven't I done more supernatural? It's so much fun because there really, there really are no rules to follow. It's like, right. you know, the hair moves by itself because someone's tugging on it. Well, you don't need to explain why it happens. We know why it happens. It, you know, it's the supernatural. So I, we had so much fun. When you talk about throwing everything but the kitchen sink in, um, we, you know, when we were finished that story, we, you know, we kind of looked at each other. We said, well, we did not exactly reinvent the wheel. Um, there's nothing overly original, but it was so much fun. And the response to it was great. I mean, we hear all the time people say, that's the scariest short story or novella I've ever read. And so that was one of the things that we showed Simon and Schuster is a lot of the reader feedback and uh, they were excited. So yeah, we've got a big haunted lighthouse story to write. So exciting. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited. This was absolutely wonderful. You filled our heads with, with more info and tidbits and, and knowledge and backstory than we could have asked for. Oh, that was fun. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the iconic and legendary Richard Chismar. It was such an honor to have you on our show. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, guys. Thank you. Back anytime. Thanks. 